The fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, offering solar options, energy security, and solutions for the local community. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. Later in the show, our word nerd, Greenfield's Emily Brewster from Merriam-Webster in Springfield, will do some studenting and learn about functional shift. And right now, Keith Ferry, president and CEO of Wayfinders, and Janice Jordan, executive director of the Springfield Housing Authority. On October 18th, the Healy Driscoll administration unveiled a $4 billion, with a B, dollar plan to jumpstart the production of homes and make housing more affordable across Massachusetts. It's called the Affordable Homes Act. A comprehensive package of spending policy and programmatic actions represents the largest proposed investment in housing in the state's history, while simultaneously striking at the root causes of housing unaffordability and making progress on the state's climate goals. This multi-pronged approach includes $4 billion in capital spending authorizations, 28 substantive policy changes or initiatives, three executive orders, and two targeted tax credits. All are directed at reducing barriers to the production and preservation of housing and giving communities the tools to develop more housing where they need it. The majority of the spending will have benefits for moderate and low-income households. And here's what Governor Healy announcing the new bill in Chelsea sounded like last week. What we're going to do is invest in housing, invest in new homes, unlocking new opportunities, making homes and housing more affordable. And that's why today we're filing legislation, calling it the Affordable Homes Act. It's a $4 billion. I said we were going to go big, and we're going to go big, and we must go big to meet this moment for Massachusetts and for what everyone across this state deserves. $4 billion to create homes all over the state, 40,000 new homes, another almost 30,000 affordable homes that will get through preservation, renovation, and rehabilitation, and so much more. This is going to be legislation that will make our state more affordable for everyone. It's going to help us meet our climate goals. It's going to empower communities to meet their residents' needs, to revitalize our main streets and our neighborhoods, improve the quality of life. I'm excited about it, you can tell, because it's really, really big. I'll also just say that the feedback was the governor's fault, not our fault. You you, you have to put the speakers in front of the microphone. But to explore a little bit more about what this actually means for us here in the 413, we're joined by two members of the Western Mass Housing Coalition, Keith Ferry, president and CEO of Wayfinders, and Denise Jordan, the executive director of the Springfield Housing Authority. Keith Ferry began his tenure as president and chief executive officer of Wayfinders in July of 2020. Prior to joining Wayfinders, Keith was a senior vice president for Enterprise Community Partners Incorporated, chief operating officer of the Mount Hope Housing Company, and the assistant director of Community Pride, the community building program of the Harlem Children's Zone. Denise Jordan was born and raised in Springfield in a household where community activism and service was a daily part of her upbringing. She's a proud resident of the city of Springfield and a product of Springfield Public Schools. Denise Jordan worked for the Commonwealth in several roles over 20 years. In 2008, she became the city of Springfield's first black chief of staff and the longest person to occupy that position, serving for over 10 years. In 2018, she was appointed as executive director of the Springfield Housing Authority, which lists itself as the second largest housing authority in the state with now third. Okay. Who beat oh, us? Wait, who beat us? Worcester. 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 Come on, Worcester. <laughs> <laughs> 2,300 traditional public housing units located at 27 sites throughout the city, 240 Massachusetts rental vouchers, and 2,800 housing choice 
vouchers. So that, how do we get that right mostly, Denise? 2,400 units, about 5,000. Oh, um, 5,000. Yeah, so it's going up. It's going yeah. up. Yes. Well, it's interesting with this bond bill, which is huge mm -hmm. and, and a major investment. And we'll dig into those details in a little more in just a little bit. But if people, the Springfield Housing Authority, I think people are familiar with what housing authorities do. You would do that in Springfield. Somewhat. Okay. Well, <laughs> let's dig it. Let's dive okay. into that then. What, so what, what's some misconceptions I'm glad, I'm or some ideas? Yes. <laughs> because we're called the Springfield Housing Authority, um, a lot of folks are under the misconception too. One, they think we're another department of the city of Springfield, which we are not. Uh -huh. Right. And they also think that our job is to house people. What they don't understand is that we just manage the how the units that are under our portfolio. Yeah. Right. So, but we do, we still assist folks. We we tell them to call Keith. Yeah, so that's <laughs> what I really want to find out about. How Tell us the, what Wayfinders does in relationships with organizations like the Springfield Housing Authority. So Wayfinders is an affordable housing and community development organization that serves Western Massachusetts. We're headquartered here in Springfield, but we work across all four counties. Uh, and we work across the housing continuum from homelessness to home ownership. So we uh, provide emergency shelter uh, for uh, families experiencing homelessness. We work with homeowners uh, to prevent foreclosure. We work with people to become homeowners. And we also build and manage affordable housing. We have 24 different projects across the region, over 800 units, and we have a, a robust pipeline of another 400 in the next uh, three or four years, if we get the funding to do it, we'll be developing in our region. And we develop in urban settings, rural settings, and uh, in suburban settings as well. Uh, and we also advocate for more uh, resources and uh, for affordable housing and for uh, creating an equitable and thriving region. Cool. <laughs> I mean, it's an understatement. Plus, I, full disclosure, I used some of Wayfinder services when I bought my house last year. Nice. So, because it was easy and available, and they helped us get through some of that three inches of paperwork without losing a lot of our hair. Yeah, it's not easy to buy a house. It's not easy no. to rent a house. And it's good to have an organization that can assist people mm -hmm. to that end. Yeah. You mostly worked in New York before. What is different about being in this area as opposed to where you were in New York, what's different about the the housing situations and what you've encountered? Size. Oh. Um, uh, New York is uh, significantly bigger than, than Massachusetts, uh, and in some ways that means the problem's bigger. Uh, but New York has also uh, been has larger resources in some cases to deal with, especially when we look at Western Massachusetts. Uh, you know, Springfield is, uh, is is our biggest city. Um, but we don't have a lot of resources coming through the city directly. And, and unfortunately, sometimes we don't have a lot of state resources that make their way all the way here. Uh, one of the things that we uh, talk about with our colleagues in housing and, and throughout is about kind of uh, uh, regional equity in terms of getting the resources we need to meet our housing needs. In 2021 and 2022, Wayfinders worked with the UMass Donahue Institute and various community stakeholders, including uh, Denise, uh, to bring forward the Greater Springfield Housing Study. And what that study pointed out, one of the headline uh, data points was that we have an 11,000-unit housing supply gap projected to grow by 2025 to 19,000 units. We don't have enough housing for the people who live here in our region. Um, and so that is a critical issue, not just for people who are low-income, that's a critical issue for all of us. If we want this region to grow and thrive and be an economically viable region where we can attract um, employers and other things, we have to have a healthy housing continuum. And today we don't. Not only do we have this issue around uh, not having enough homes, the homes we have are in great need of repair, whether it be our public housing, and Denise can talk to this, mm -hmm. or privately owned homes. We have some of the oldest housing stock in the Commonwealth. 
And I know that one of the things in the bond bill is to address this, uh, the repair. I saw that WBUR and ProPublica did an investigation last month where they found that there were 2,300 units unoccupied, and a lot of those units mm -hmm. were in need of repair. So then, days after the investigation, the Secretary of Housing, Ed Augustus, announced a 90-day push to reduce those number of vacancies in public housing by the end of the year. Okay. Is that the situation that we're facing in Springfield as well, it Denise? It is not. Ah. I am so happy to say. Yeah, so that's <laughs> good. Tell us how that's different than what, what was investigated by this WBUR report. So there's a process, and a lot of people just think because the unit is empty that you can just go to the list and put someone in it. But at the end of the day, you still have to get information. You have to, like, what you call like try to lease someone in and before you lease someone in you have to make sure that they've checked all the boxes and that they're clear mm -hmm. um, sometimes it may take months to track down a former landlord because you have to get information from them uh, you have to call the people that are on the list those lists can be long at times so by the time you get to that person they may say they don't want it they're not interested so then you go to the next person right then when you go through some things you show the person the the um, unit they may not want it and so things happen. So then now you spent sometimes weeks on one person. And then if they don't take it, then you have to go to the next. Mm -hmm. So it's not that easy. But then, you know, there are other circumstances that like they may not have enough maintenance to turn the units over and, um, you know, in a quick period of time. So there's a lot of extenuating factors. I don't like to talk about other housing authorities because I don't know why that issue exists for them. Um but I do know Springfield Housing, we were asked to help assist folks with their vacancy in the, L in the local housing authority world in terms of how we do things here. But I know it's not as easy as people think. Right. Because right. you would think they're open. Let's just get somebody in right. there today. And I will say, I'm, I mean, I'm five years in, but that was the first question I asked. If yeah. our list is so long, we shouldn't have any. Right. Right. And, but there is a process. Speaking with Denise Jordan, as well as Keith Ferry, we're talking about the housing bond bill. Um, Denise, would the housing bond bill help make your work more efficient? Would it help make the process faster to get people into these uh, house, these vacant houses? Could they hire more staff that could then turn these uh, applications over more quickly? I think for me, it's really not about uh, more staff. I think it's more of the process. Mm. And the process is something that um, I think folks are looking at. There's this thing called CHAMPS. And uh, most people in the housing world don't really like to talk about it because uh, those that actually do the work feel like it's just a, a paper process that has been revised to the point that it's actually causing more work than it did before we had this Is system. CHAMPS an acronym for something? Does it stand for something? But we don't know what it is. It's fine. We'll look it up. <laughs> yeah, so because I'm right now, I'm like having a brain freeze. Yeah, I know. But you know, when I think of the the uh, proposed housing bond bill, I'm not thinking about applications. I'm thinking about money. Uh -huh. I'm thinking about um, you know funding that we could get for capital improvements. That's what's important to us. We have a, a aging infrastructure. You know, we're the third largest housing authority, but um, our oldest housing development, Reed Village, will be 74 November 6. Mm -hmm. So as you can imagine. Let's talk about those pipes. Yeah. yeah. And we're in a new era of uh, flushable wipes. No, not for things that were built back uh, then. They don't work. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, with the funding that we get, um, we're funded from, from HUD and from the um, Office of Housing and Livable Communities. At times, we get probably a little over $5 million. So $5 million to do capital improvements for 
2,400 units, you do the math. Yeah. Right. So what we're doing is we're just putting Band-Aids on major issues that we need to do total overhauls. We need to actually just you know, go to different developments and have entirely new plumbing systems and things like that. Yeah, where then we're flushing the Band-Aids so, down the toilet absolutely. and causing more problems. So it's a yeah. problem. We, we want to preserve the housing stock that we have, but we can't do that without enough the proper funding so that we can keep those um, housing up to code to keep them livable and to make sure that we maintain um, the, the right uh, housing conditions for the people that we serve. And, and that's to, important. And to put those people somewhere else while you're fixing the building. Like there's, I, Thank you for I feel like that. there's not, like you're not going to keep those people in place while you're trying to do those repairs. Like that's, especially with overhauls like that, like that, that's another thing that gets has to be considered too. Where are those people going to go? My big ask um, was for elevators, just, just $12 million. That's all I needed. And in order to do that, you have to like take units offline. Yeah. Um, you have to move residents. When we move them, we have to find somewhere else for them to go. If we have vacancies, we can do that. Some opt to live with family members during um, reconstruction, but then we have to feed those people. They get a daily allotment. So that adds to the cost of just the, pro- the, the actual project. And so there's a lot of moving parts there. More with Denise Jordan and Keith Ferry talking about the housing bond bill that's been proposed by the governor. In just a second, you're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. The Fabulous 413 is also funded by UConn's Jorgensen Center for the Performing Arts, presenting bluegrass artist Molly Tuttle and Golden Highway on Saturday, November 11th at 8. Tickets at jorgensen.uconn.edu. That's going to be a good show. Right now, more with Keith Ferry, President and CEO of Wayfinders, and Denise Jordan, Executive Director of the Springfield Housing Authority. I found out what CHAMP stands for. Common Housing Application for Massachusetts Programs. And so, and Denise, it uh, says common as the first letter, but it, it, it makes things more troublesome for what you're trying to do and, and make sure people have houses? Yes. I think I'm going to get in trouble, but yes. <laughs> we try to tell the truth. The radio know, station is, is a, a microphone is like a confessional. It's hard not to tell the truth when you're in front of it. Uh, go ahead. Oh, I, I was going to say for, uh, to Keith, like there, so part of this bill is specifically focused on programs to encourage a more robust middle class. Can you talk about how some of those allocations or those programs interact with Wayfinders in this area? Sure. So as I mentioned before, Wayfinders develops housing. Uh, We develop housing that is for low-income folks, for moderate-income folks, and even a little bit of market rate housing because that's part of the housing continuum we need to have a healthy community. Mm -hmm. Uh, As people live in communities, as they they become more economically mobile, you want to create the right amount of housing choice to go from renter to become homeowners. And today, and over the last uh, years and decades, in fact, we've seen a declining public investment in housing, not only in public housing, but from the federal government, uh, which subsidizes uh, the creation of affordable housing and even workforce or moderate income housing. Uh, go think about Levittown. That was a big government program mm-hmm. to create. They helped create the middle class that we have today that ended up sending people to college and creating huge wealth uh, for those people who are able to take advantage of that. That was a huge public investment, and we've had since that time, since the 50s till now, a declining public investment. We have not been building enough, uh, and uh, and we know that we need housing to meet the needs of today and in the future that's different than what we have right now. We have a huge baby boomer generation that's living longer, staying in their homes, living healthier. 
So they're not freeing up the homes they normally would have in previous mm-hmm. generations. And we have a millennial population who is growing families, creating new households, and they need new housing choice and opportunity. If we want to keep them here in the Commonwealth, if we want to create an equitable and thriving Commonwealth, we've got to create the right housing choices. And the bond bill looks to do that. So there's money here uh, for affordable housing for low-income people. There's a great need for that, particularly here in our region. Working with the Donahue Institute, we know that we, there are 17,000 households that need housing that's uh, affordable at $500 or less. That's subsidized affordable housing. Um, but at the same time, we need to create more mixed income housing for people who are working whose, whose incomes are not keeping up with the cost of rising cost of housing. And by the way, our housing costs have risen throughout steadily throughout the pandemic. In hot neighborhoods in Boston, they dropped and then it came back up. We didn't have that. It just kept going up. But our incomes didn't. So we need to create more mixed income housing opportunities. And then fo- folks who want to become homeowners, where's that starter home? Who's been building that starter home? Starter home says someone who just bought a house. Yes, (laughs) yes, very hard to find, Mm -hmm. right? We have historically low vacancy rates on the rental and ownership side, and no one's been building that starter home. So we need to create programs like that. And there's a program here called the Commonwealth Builder Program um, that's about building more home ownership opportunities, particularly in our gateway cities. Look. The Western Massachusetts success is uh, leads to the Commonwealth success. One of the things the governor ran on was that we lost, uh, we're losing population. People are leaving the state. We need to become more affordable and more competitive. And now, how many people left? 47,000 people left. In our gateway cities here in Western Massachusetts, most of them are below peak population. So I'm talking about Springfield, Holyoke, Chicopee, um, and if we brought those, they're below their peak population, significantly below. In fact, there's 65,000 people below their peak. We have room to grow. Our success is a Commonwealth success, and the opportunity to invest in this bond bill is part of that. Not only to invest in the existing stock, the public mm-hmm. housing stock, which seriously needs it, but in creating new housing opportunities so that we can have a more vibrant and dynamic region where people want to be here, want to stay here, and want to also invest here with their families, uh, with businesses, in the communities, um, so that we can thrive. That is Keith Ferry, who is the executive director of Wayfinders, and we're also speaking with Denise Jordan from the Springfield Housing Authority. Some of the details as far as this new bond bill, which is still proposed, proposed. some of these things are going to be controversial with the legislature, I'm imagining, especially a tax levied upon home sales that can be higher than it has previously been that would then go to subsidize mm-hmm. housing. Does the coalition that you are a part of, which is a large organization of housing authorities, are there parts of this that you think are are more controversial than others, that you support more than others, that you think are going to be a barrier for this to make it hard for everyone to wrap their arms around this investment in housing? I think that what's unique about this bond bill, as you just described, um, is that there are it's not just about these capital authorizations. Uh, or some some other uh, well-known um, incentive programs to create housing. It does have a lot of policy in it. And so I think from a coalition standpoint, uh, the transfer fee uh, program that you talked about, Monty, is something that we would be supportive of. It's creating new, new opportunity to create more resources, locally-based resources for housing. Uh, the, the way it's currently written, I believe it's on, on high um, 
high uh, dollar sales. Yeah. So right. a, million, a million dollars a million or more. Dollars, yeah. That's not really going to have any impact here the way it's written. So we, in fact, we would we would suggest that we lower that number because most sales are well below that. Not to, to the point that it has to affect everybody, but to get to our higher dollar sales, which would be more in the five or $600,000 range to really generate some income. But that's a local option, right? That's a local opportunity. It's not a requirement. So it's not like all of a sudden that's going to happen to every city in town. And w- one of the things is that this does too would make local options a little more malleable without so much state oversight so that community to community could get more involved that's right and and, you know communities really have to say what do we need to create a vibrant community today well what our communities are facing are declining tax revenues declining school enrollments we need to grow in order to to we have all this public investment in public schools if you look into many of our rural communities talk to to Lyndon Dunlavey at the Franklin Regional Council of Governments they're 21% below capacity in our schools at the end of the day what happens to those schools they start closing regionalizing and other things so we look at our healthcare system especially as we get further away from our our gateway cities we starting to see our hospital systems close down uh, health care uh, facilities, closing down maternity wards, closing down other acute care. So you have to drive further to get those things. Why? Because people aren't there. If you want those things to be in your community, you have to invest in housing where people want to be. Um, so what this does is uh, what we're excited about in the bond bill is, yes, there's both the, the investments in a wide range of housing, and then there's some new policy opportunities, not only the one you mentioned, Monty, but also about uh, accessory dwelling units by right. Right. Uh, that allow the homeowner to put in an accessory dwelling. In about, law apartment. In right. law apartment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Think about fitting out that garage to, 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 to make it somewhat somewhere someone can live in. Um, that can allow someone to stay in place, but also creates a new unit. It's not all big apartment buildings. We're actually working, the coalition is actually, the Western Mass Housing Coalition is working with the Massachusetts Housing Partnership um, on, a, on a land use study. And one of the things they just did as a preliminary analysis is they looked at developable land uh, determined by assessors um, that say, well, they're developable lots. How many of them? We have, we have thousands of them. Mm-hmm. If we just, let's say, let's say two-thirds of them, you really can't develop. But if we put three or four units on on the rest of them, we'd solve our housing crisis, right? And so it's not always the big, you know, scary apartment building that's going to come in and change the character of your neighborhood. Uh, it's these little things. It's an all-of-the-above approach that we need to be able to get uh, a handle on our housing challenges. Keith Ferry is from Wayfinders. This is about the governor's bond bill, as we mentioned before. Uh, Denise Jordan, who's from the Springfield Housing Authority, uh, we've got just about a minute left, but uh, one of the things that stood out to me, and this has to do with CHAMP, I think, and the filling out of paperwork, is renters get certain no-fault evictions sealed after three years and other evictions sealed after seven years. How much does that factor into how hard it is to get housing in the Commonwealth or specifically in what you're doing in Springfield, these no-fault evictions? So I think it plays a small part I think one of the things is that the the lists are so long. Yeah. You know, and so it's not about um, even if you have like some of those uh, barriers and things like that. We still look at everyone's application, and just because you have an issue, it doesn't mean that we won't try to work with you. Um, I think the main thing is, I mean, we're focusing so much on Champ, and for me, in my mind, I mean, I'm really looking at capital construction yeah and so that's this is, my big thing this is a four billion dollar um, so investment right yeah. and so you know as we know that there is an affordable housing shortage um you know i think all of us wayfinders and all of the other agencies we're all doing our part but one of the things is that you know what people have to understand is with that champ system 
it's a regional system. I mean, not a regional. It's statewide now. It used to be regional. So that mm-hmm. means folks from Eastern Mass can bump someone that lives in Western Mass. Uh-huh. Uh, Uh-oh. Right? And so for us, you know, it would be... That explains the backlog. It would be great <laughs> to be able to take care of folks that are actually from this, the Western region. And so, you know, I get, I guess, nervous when we look at our homelessness population right now in the Western part in the lack of affordable housing. And then I think about agencies that keep bringing people to the West. We can't handle the numbers that we have now. So we keep concentrating more people that need housing. And then that kind of puts folks that are already on the list that have been waiting for years further behind because sometimes people come from somewhere else and they get emergency housing. And so there's an equity issue. Denise Denise Jordan from the Springfield Housing Authority and Keith Ferry, the executive director of Wayfinders. Thanks so much for breaking down little bits and pieces of this proposed bond bill, which still makes make its way through the legislature, but would be, according to you both and the coalition you're a part of, a major investment in helping with housing in our area. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster, our resident word nerd. Uh, our surprise on this last day of the fun drive, you're here in the studio with us in our brand new NEPM studio. So exciting to be here. And after a, a long slog of getting you on our Wi-Fi, we're ready to roll <laughs> with some words. Technology and is cruel. We had an email from a listener after our conversation last week. About theatries. About theater, the pretentious way with an R-E, and theater, the people's way with an E-R. Can you read the email from our listener, Steve? Yes. Hi, my name's Steve. I'm a huge fan of the show, particularly the word nerd. I've always understood that theater actually has two meanings, and I would love to check and see if this is correct. The way I learned it, I actually have a degree in theater, and I would love to know if I'm wrong. ER at the end refers to the place, a playhouse or a cinema, whereas theater with an RE at the end refers to the art form, acting and directing and putting plays up on the stage. I'd love to find out if this is true. No better person to ask than our fair dictionary in Springfield, Massachusetts, Emily Brewster. Is Steve correct? Well, (laughs) well. I mean, the word theater comes to English by way of Old French, which means it's, you know, pretty long time ago. And in French, it was spelled with an R-E at the end, because that's just how the French people are. But from the 14th century to the 17th century, both spellings were used. Chaucer preferred R-E, which makes sense if you know that Chaucer was writing at this time when, you know, English in writing was coming back into form and had been deeply influenced by the French. But Shakespeare, just a short time later, relatively short time, preferred the ER spelling. Noah Webster went with the ER spelling, as we talked about last week, because he wanted to regularize all of these RE spellings to have the ER spellings. Now, some people prefer to use the RE spelling because I think it maybe maybe like Steve suggests that it has to do with a deeper connection to not the place, but the actual performing, the actual act of theatering to verb it. Aha. Uh-huh. Yes. But the fact is that what we see in our evidence is that the ER spelling is the spelling that is preferred in American English and in all the rest of the world where English is spoken, it's usually the RE spelling that is preferred. Despite the fact that Shakespeare did ER? Yeah. 
Weird. Mm-hmm. So Chaucer well, the, wins well, over Shakespeare this yeah, round. The bard can't fix everything. <laughs> well, no. And there is a, a lot of pushback against the colonization, the Americanization of English. People did not, you know, on the other side of the pond, they're like, you know, we, we have it right. You have it wrong. It's all political, actually. Yeah. They think they're the center with an RE of the entire language. Well, they maybe they're say, not correct. I mean, they do go, hey, the language is named after us. <laughs> so maybe take our word for it. And we went... Yeah, no. <laughs> We're New England, home of Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. Both spellings are, of course, completely fine. And if you have a theater troupe and want to spell it with R-E because you feel like that evokes the art form more, then, of course, you can do that. And they do do that, right? Like, people people do that, and that that's fine. But as a general rule, most of the general public does not understand this distinction. And so in published, edited text, we are most likely, we are most frequently not seeing that distinction being made. Well, thank you for your question, Steve. And anybody can send in questions to The Word Nerd and to us at thefab413 at nepm.org. But you did use theater with a functional shift, Emily Brewster. That's what we're really going to talk about today. Tell us what functional shift is. Functional shift is when a word takes on a new part of speech. At Merriam-Webster, we abbreviate it to P-O-S. (laughs) (laughs) That means something totally different in my mind. Point of sale. Known to wait staff everywhere. Yeah. You use theater as a verb, theatering, which is probably not taken off in any major way to the point that it's in the dictionary that way, but lots of words have like that. Yes. And the the term verbing actually dates to the early 20th century. I think 1924 or so is the date of our current earliest evidence of that. But it goes by other names. Uh, In linguistics, they sometimes call this the specific move from a noun to a verb denominalization. Uh And we see it in words like gift. You know, you're going to gift something to someone. And pe- people have a hard time with change in general, as we all know, and especially linguistic change. Right? Like we, we, we tend to rebel against these things because they seem, they seem wrong. They don't sound right to our ear. They sound annoying. They sound jargony. But often the driver of functional shift and especially denominalization or verbing is that it is so efficient. Mm-hmm. If you gift somebody instead of give someone a gift, you have made your words much fewer. Yeah, definitely. Brevity is the soul of wit. Right. My well, favorite and- modern one is adult. <laughs> Adulting. Adulting. <laughs> yeah. My, I don't like to actually do that, but uh, I appreciate that it works. It's annoying exists. to do. It's a, it's a terrible thing to do. We all got sold a bill of goods. Yeah, oh, yeah. It seems like it's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> there are really good things about adulting, like being able to have ice cream for breakfast. Yes. Yeah. That's a nice, I think, a nice feature. Adulting. adulting. But I didn't have to pay for that ice cream myself. Yeah. And I didn't used to. Right. You used to go into a candy store and you'd be like, oh, my God, I saved up enough money for like a, a nutty buddy. And now you could be like, I could buy all this candy and I don't even want any of it. No. It's going to, you know, go against my diet. Yeah, it, it is. It is. It is sad. In our earliest evidence of the verb adulting, it was often contrasted with kidding. Isn't really? That funny? Yeah. Are you kidding? No, I'm adulting. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I'm going to say that from now on. But nobody wants to, like, you don't have just adulting in comparison to just kidding. No. No, there also was earlier evidence of adulting, meaning having to com- committing adultery uh-huh. as being oh. another use of the word adulting. It wasn't until around 2010 or so that we start to see a substantial use of the adulting that we all know now, which has to do with just doing the behaviors that come with being an adult, like making dentist appointments and then going to them, using a dry cleaner, that sort of thing. That is is what adulting is now. Totally. Yep. Yeah. Plumbing. 
Oh, yeah. yeah. But efficiency is a really big driver. You think also about a word like Google. When mm. did we say you Google something? You don't want to say, look at, you know, look this up on the internet using the search engine Google. We mm-hmm. say Google it. Google th- is thrilled that we do that, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> what other evidences do we have of functional shift in words that are fun like this? Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster, our dictionary in Springfield, here at our new station in Springfield, and this is the last day of the fun drive, nepm.org or 800-639-8850. Can I, can I say that? I've never said it. Yeah, please yeah. do. Go to nepm.org or call 800-639-8850. Come on, you did that great. Yeah, it was perfect. If you act now, we'll figure out how to get you a dictionary. <laughs> Even if I have to go buy it. <laughs> Maybe You're I can give this... you my discount, Monty. Okay. I think you'll need to, considering, like, <laughs> I would take him up on it just to see. I didn't tell you what size of dictionary. Could be a page from dictionary. It's not about size, Monty. Right. It's how you use it. And people have used the dictionary in fun ways. What's more evidence of functional shift? Well, you know, a bunch of years ago, actually, I was paying a lot of attention to a new kind of or a kind of functional shift that was very popular for a bit. And that is not the verbing functional shift, but the adjective into noun kind of thing. Maybe like 2013 or so, people were saying things like, um, you know, the olds, like calling old people the olds. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) I wrote a uh, blog that is no longer extant at at, uh, Merriam-Webster, the unabridged website, on this kind of functional shift. And I started it off by talking about one of my favorite songs of all time by the Violent Femmes with Gordon Gano singing Five for My Lonely. Five, five, five for my lonely. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, you know, he was doing that way back then. Five for my lonely. That is definitely an example of this kind of functional shift, which in poetry is not called functional shift because that's not that's not a it's Latin enough poetry. sounding term. Well, it's uh, it's called <laughs> anthemaria. Whoa. Actually. Yeah. To use ha- the rhetorical I have term. an anthemaria. Yeah. Yeah. But anthemaria <laughs> is a it's a um, really formal term. So nobody uses that term, but it's a good one to throw out there. Anthemaria. Mm-hmm. That's poetic license, essentially, right? It's poetic license to applied to functional shift. Uh Aha. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. And poets have often been at the forefront of functional shift and anthemaria. The word sweet was an adjective for hundreds of years before we could eat something sweet and call it a sweet. Mm -hmm. And it was first used, that noun was first used in poetry. Anthemaria. Anthemaria. And of course, Justin Timberlake, I'm bringing sexy back. I'm bringing sexy back. Yes. Right. That's also an example of this anthemaria. <laughs> Sorry, Khalees. <I'm, laughs> no, that always... song is awesome. Yeah. That song is wicked fun. He, I think he achieved it. Do you? Oh, yeah. I don't. He brought it back. Okay. Sexy is here. And beat it up and took its money. <laughs> <laughs> Some more evidence of functional shift? Oh, I mean, it's everywhere. You think about like, I, I said before that there are, um, that efficiency is one of the drivers why we say Google. Same thing happened with the word vacuum. Mm. We started out with vacuum cleaners were invented in the early 20th century. And within 15 years, you have the verb to vacuum something. First, it went from being a vacuum cleaner, and then you could call that device just plain vacuum, and then you would use it and you would be vacuuming. The drive for efficiency is really a, a, a big pusher in it, but also playfulness is a big factor. And I think that that was what was really going on with a lot of the adjective to noun examples that we were seeing, especially about 10 years ago. On Twitter, people were just doing this all over the place, and it was a playful way to expand the language. Adulting, I think, definitely came out of that impulse as opposed to an efficiency impulse. 
What finally trips the balance that gets the attention of Merriam-Webster that makes it something that you may then put in the dictionary? How frequently does it have to be used in published and edited text before you're like, okay, adulting is finally in? Yeah, there's not an actual number Uh of instances that we have to record. We want to see it in a variety of of published text. It's not that it's not legitimate before then, but if we really tried to be Urban Dictionary, we we just could not possibly keep up. (laughs) Although Kalise and I were both noting earlier today how on point your social media game is oh, yes. at Merriam-Webster. My sister posted their their thing about TLC. It's like, this is absolutely my favorite channel on TikTok. And I'm like, I'm going to talk to her today. And I'm going to tell her that you said that. And she's like, you do that. And then I got to brag that I've been in your basement. And she was really jealous. <laughs> <laughs> Merriam-Webster posted on TikTok a video from the group TLC from the song Scrubs explaining the difference between a dictionary and a thesaurus. Also known as a it's wonderful. <laughs> I haven't actually seen it, but I'm going to tell John that you said so because um, <laughs> he should have all the credit for that. What's yeah. his last name? Let's give him a shout Sabine. out. Sabine. S-A-B-I-N-E. It's good He's e- fantastic. Good year to be a Sabine. With, he is. Uh, he is fantastic. <laughs> for a long time, your social media has been great. Follow them on all their channels. I can't tell you to do that. You might want to consider following them on all of your social media channels because they are uh, quite delightful. Before- Just if you like people playing with words. Yeah. I, who doesn't like people playing with words? Some people get really angry, which is also fun to watch on your social media channels. <laughs> <laughs> and your response to those is often also on point. Yeah. Not my job. Not my job. <laughs> I just do the uh, I just do the defining. Jobbing also a thing. <laughs> Some jobbing. I call it working. That's interesting. I wonder which one. I mean, work. I assume that the noun came before the uh, the verb, but sometimes some of these word pairs where we have two are the same age, like house, meaning like to house someone and to live in a house. Those two words both come from Old English. So does sleep, which I thought was really interesting. Mm -hmm. And bed also. They're all Old English. So work as a verb and work as a noun both date to before the 12th century. So they're both really old. Not clear that one gave us the other. The adjective work dates to the 14th century. I thought it dated to Rihanna. Work, 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 work. No. No, like something that's used for work, like work clothes or a workhorse. So that's an example of functional shift. I mean, functional shift just happens all the time. And most of the time, it doesn't bother us at all. But then something like gift comes along and people get really, really upset. But gift is not new. It's been around a long time, actually. Hundreds of years. Gift is a verb. So don't sweat it. And if you'd like to gift any PM, any amount of money on this last day of the fun drive, we would gladly accept it. Do you want to give the phone number and the email out again? NEPM.org or call 800-639-8850. Thank you, Emily Brewster. Keeping us in our words and our functions. I will say that as far as the show's gone so far, less than a year, that I think you're like even above and beyond Congressman Jim McGovern, our, our most sought after and commented upon guest. For sure. So thank you. If you'd like to keep Emily Brewster on the air, (laughs) 1-800-639-8850. And also email us your questions for her, thefab413 at nepm.org. Thank you, Emily Brewster. Thank you, Monty and Khalees. Yay. (laughs) Tomorrow on the show, get ready to rock with the cast and crew of Lizzie, the Lizzie Borden rock musical opening at the Divine Theater next week. And we'll discover one of the most unique geological structures in not just Massachusetts, the Jurassic Armored Mud Balls, and explain 
how you could influence their future. Plus, our weekly chat with Representative Jim McGovern, who might be reeling from getting a new speaker today. Got a question for the congressman? Email thefab413 at nepm.org. Thanks to our tireless Fab 413 team for all their help. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. And as you know, today is the last day of the fall fund drive. We fund the fabulous 413 with listener contributions. I'm asking you if you can do that right now. Don't wait till the end of the drive. Please do it now. Do this. Go to nepm.org or call 800-639-8850. It's so soothing when Emily Brewster does it. The drive is going great. This hour is going great. And thank you. And here one more time is John Sutton and Katie Wright to wrap up the fun drive for the Fabulous 4 and 3 after I play Emily one more time. Go to nepm.org or call 800-639-8850. I love it when you capitalize on the word nerd. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You see what happens when you hang out with us too much? I know. I love bad jokes. I've been this way a long, long time. (laughs) Don't encourage him. (laughs) 